This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. I'm your host, Jason Breifel. Uh, today we have a really fabulous show and I'm pleased to be joined by three cybersecurity experts talking about how uh, this issue is being framed and addressed both by the government as well as industry and society writ large. Um, and I'd like to introduce all of our guests to you all today so that you understand the experts that we have with us that we're really um, pleased to have. Uh, first is uh, Alan Poller. Alan is the founder and instructor with the Sands Institute. Uh, thank you for being here with us, Alan. Uh, next, we have Dr. Charlie Harry. Charlie is an associate research professor with the Center for International Security and Studies at the University of Maryland, as well as a director of operations at the Maryland Global Initiative on Cybersecurity. Welcome to the show, and thank you for being here with us, Charlie. Thank you. Uh, and lastly, over the phone, we're pleased to have Alan Liska. Alan is an intelligence analyst with Recorded Future. Uh, Alan, thank you all for joining us today. Thank you, and I've got to say I'm very excited to be on a panel with another Alan. It doesn't happen very often. Absolutely, and I'll uh, do my best to drive traffic uh, to, to the two of you to avoid confusion as, as best as we can. Uh, before I dive in, I wanted to remind all of our listeners that Fed Talk is brought to you by Long-Term Care Partners. Long-Term Care Partners administers the Office of Personnel Management-sponsored federal long-term care insurance program. To learn more, visit them at ltcfeds.com today. Well, again, Alan, Alan, and Charlie, I'm really happy to have you all here today to talk about a huge issue that society, that government, that all of us are really focused on, which is around cybersecurity and how we're ensuring uh, the systems of our world, the underpinning um, in, the, in our digital environment and technological age um, is being protected and, and helping us do our job and moving uh, things forward. And one thing that I thought could help frame the conversation for our listeners is, is just a brief conversation about the word cyber and cybersecurity. What do we mean when we say those things? Do folks understand them in the same way? And um, maybe we can start with you, Charlie, first. Okay, great. Um, yeah, so the, this definitional issue is actually uh, sometimes a little challenging, right? Um, but the way that I tend to think about cyber uh, before we get to cybersecurity is really the confluence between technical systems and human systems. Um, and so when you bring those together, how humans and how human organizations interact with technology um, you get something uh, that we can term maybe cyber, and that somewhat differentiates it from, uh, you know, kind of more standard information assurance. Um, cybersecurity is the security of those cyber systems. Um, so, you know, when we talk about cybersecurity issues, uh, they could be technical. So we could be um, speaking about uh, patch management and, and making sure that your systems are up to date. But it, it could also be, um, you know, more directly related to humans. So, you know, we do phishing tests to, you know, see if we can trick our employees to uh, actually click on that link. Um, so that's how I tend to think about the problem is this confluence between technical and human systems. Great. Thank you, Troy. I think that helps frame things. And sometimes those, the human element is, <laughs> is the weakest link in the chain. Um, uh, Alan Liska from Recorded Future Thoughts on this? Uh, did, did Charlie hit the mark? Is is there a different lens from your perspective as an intelligence analyst? Uh, I, I agree. I think he hits the mark uh, very well with that, and um, that there are several different areas of coverage. Obviously, when we talk about threat intelligence, 
you know, our, when we talk about cyber security, we're, we're also looking at sort of an external view. What are the threats? What are the motivations? What are the actors out there? So in addition to how you protect your systems, what you have to worry about uh, either on the horizon or threats that are happening to other organizations uh, uh, in your sector. Fabulous. Thank you, Alan Liska. Now, Alan Pollar with uh, Sands Institute, I know that you have a, a slightly different uh, vantage on this that, that focuses on the manpower dynamic in, within this question. I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. Um, it turns out that some of those people play a different role. Um, and when they don't play it well, it doesn't matter how well the rest of them play. So I'm tending to focus on how do we make sure we call them the, the red zone players, the people who when you're either about to be scored on or you're, or you're trying to score, those people have to be world class. And I, I'm tending to focus right now my interest in the cyber manpower question is how does a nation, how do nations, because we're working with both the UK and the United States, identify the people who can be the players in the red zone that either stop the other team from scoring or make sure that we score, but that in no way devalues the role of the others. It's just you, you pick a focus and that's where you spend your time. And I think that, you know, to me opens an interesting conversation. In the past, this topic was the responsibility of the IT department, your CIO, your, you know, more recently the chief information security officer. But what I'm hearing from you is, this is, this is an all-hands-on-deck. This is an integrated approach, different competencies, different skills, uh, different perspective. Uh, how is that evolution going? Well, I, you know, I, I, I think uh, more and more organizations are starting to recognize that cyber is uh, a fundamental part of their business. You're seeing uh, more board members asking for training. Uh, you're seeing uh, members of the C-suite um, you know, being pressured to, to make this a core part of their uh, executive leadership function. You know, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it was, as you noted, you know, kind of the domain of, you know, the IT, you know, systems manager, and they never wanted to, you know, hear about it. But you, when you look at some high-profile attacks, um, you know, I'm thinking about uh, NotPetya's uh, impact on Marisline, where it's a $300 million hit to the bottom line. Um, you know, that is a major concern, right? And suddenly, you know, it rises, you know, to the level of the executive. I think the challenge that we're starting to see is um, there is kind of a, uh, uh, an element of cyber that is not technical in nature. It's, it's more of a business function. It's more of a, a policy function. And I'm not sure if we actually have all the, uh, the theoretical basis is, uh, you know, worked out. Are we actually training people the right way to think in a you know in the in within these complex systems. Yeah, the, the we've spent a lot of time. John Pescatori, who created the Gartner Security Group, and I spent a lot of time on how you get boards of directors to actually make a difference in this arena. And it's fascinating how uh, little they understand of it, and how little they're ever going to understand of it. What they tend to do is they tend to delegate the cybersecurity role on a board to one or two of the members and then those are the people who actually are the bridge translate what they're hearing who who express the interest of the of the board there there is a hope that we've all had that we could educate senior management on a large on a large scale and I don't think it's possible I think we can I think we can make them more aware as we make everybody aware but I think they already are aware because they read the paper every day so the, this, this trying to train them, trying to develop them is a really hard part. I was on the board, the oversight board for the Air Force Institute of Technology, and they decided to train all their colonels in cybersecurity. And I just happened to be there one time when the colonels were in their training class. We were at a lunchroom at the same day. We were at a board meeting, and they were at their class. And I went over to their table because I was interested in how it worked. I said, so how's it going? And one of the guys said, and somebody else said, Alan's safe was, was what the, the statement was. He said, we hate it. It's got to be the worst training we've ever gone to. And everybody around the table nodded. And then one guy said, but 
there was one thing that was worth it. And that was when they actually showed us how the attack works. And when we saw that, we got a feel for what this threat really was. And when they let us actually try it, that was cool. And then everybody agreed. So it was it, lecturing at them just will kill them. But if you, if you allow them to experience the, the actual attack, both from the, the recipient of it and the, and the giver of it, it actually can, can transform senior executives. But it's very hard to do that because you actually it's 10 times more work to do that than the lecture at them about this is cybersecurity and it's a very complex topic and all that. Right. But, but what I'm hearing is that you have to bring it from the theoretical to the tactile, something you can feel, experience, have emotions about, and see how it affects your business, your mission. Or just see whatever. how it really works. It's mm -hmm. all jargon. Mm -hmm. It's all experts understand it. Make it real. Show me how to break into his computer and show me how to – to send an email over his name. Oh, it's that easy, huh? And that changes their perspective on it from it's something we delegate to IT to, oh, I actually need to pay attention to this kind of thing. Great. And uh, this we're at Alan. Uh, Alan, you have anything else to add on Liska? Yeah. So the it's kind of building on what was said before, you know, one of the changes that we're seeing, you mentioned the role of the CISO before, for the longest time, the CISO was a direct report to the CIO, which then meant that CISO equals technology. So it's you know an IT function. But we're starting to see more often now the CISO either reports directly to the CEO or the board or the CRO, and so that becomes uh, uh, you know now a CISO role is seen as more holistic. How do you implement security across? your organization, not just from a technical standpoint, but from a training perspective, from a uh, risk perspective, uh, and, and how do you, how does that, that role, uh, you know, how does he get to function as an advocate for security on all levels? And, and I think that makes a big difference because that allows both the CEO and the board to start thinking of the CISO as a broadly speaking, a security person, not just a, an IT security person. Fabulous. That's that's a really great point and something that I want to dive into after our first break here is the, the evolving nature of these roles within organizations and, and what that means for the strategy, the policy, the business attention that seems to be required to uh, make forward progress on the change that, that you all know is necessary in this space. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. We'll continue our conversation on cybersecurity with Alan, Alan, and Charlie after this break and a word from our sponsor. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. We're diving back into the big issues surrounding cybersecurity and the federal government with Alan Pauler of the Sands Institute, Charlie Harry of the University of Maryland, and Alan Liska from Recorded Future. Before the break, we were talking about the intersection and the evolution of this cyber topic as the domain of, of IT, of, of, of folks, you know, down in, in, in the basement of your building uh, with the server room to 
this is a function that is evolving, is elevating, and is increasingly on the conscious of the entire leadership suite within organizations, whether that's federal agencies, business, et cetera. And, and that's really having a lot of cascading effects. And, and I wanted to talk a little bit more about how are those roles changing and how is kind of the strategy and focus around these issues uh, changing? And, um, and maybe, Charlie, you can kick us off on that one. Yeah, no, I, I think this issue of risk is absolutely paramount, and it's really grown, um, you know, to be part of the forefront of the agenda, certainly from uh, national leaders and, and uh, uh, folks uh, across the world. And I spent quite a bit of time uh, speaking with uh, uh, folks from a variety of different countries, too, including uh, Japanese leadership and Indonesian leadership, um, as, as well as a host of other countries, and this, this notion of risk. Uh, whether you're talking about a specific uh, government organization or more broadly to think about it in terms of critical infrastructure, um, you know, things like our water systems and power and surface transport, these types of things. Um, the, the real concern is, well, how do we translate these technical vulnerabilities um, that our IT staff have identified through system scans or, you know, and all these pen tests and all these things that we're doing? into something that I, as a national leader, can understand and then allocate my scarce resources to to you know, improve security. So we've seen an evolution, certainly in the U.S. federal uh, government uh, through the U.S. cybersecurity strategy and Executive Order 13800, uh, which now mandate the use of the NIST standard framework. Risk is, is central to, to that view. And uh, Alan Liska, I'm I'm curious about your perspective on on how risk is really framing what you're doing at Recorded Future. And, and I note from your your bio here, you've worked with a lot of other major companies in this space that work with both government and industry. Um, has ha- how you present, analyze, look at this risk framework, and then share that with leaders evolved over your career in, in the role that you have as as an intelligence analyst. Yeah, it absolutely has. And, and in general, I think the, the, the organizations that are most effective in, uh, in, 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 across the board are ones who have evolved. So 20 years ago, when I got started, everything that we did was very technical. You know, here's, you know, here's IP addresses. Here's a CVSS score. Um, and, and, and we spoke in kind of our own language that was foreign to management that was formed to the, certainly to the board of directors and, and, and so on. Organizations that are successful have learned how to tell a story, and that story revolves around risk. So, you know, you take vulnerability management, which is, is a really important topic and sort of a base level of security that a lot of organizations still struggle with. Um, but if you take vulnerability management as an example, um, Generally, you have a vulnerability management team that does the scanning, that does the analysis, and then they send the reports over to the desktop team or the server team or the Unix team or the Windows team or the networking team, et cetera, to do the patching. And and the problem is if you tell them, hey, this has a CVSS score of 10, so you have to patch it right away, that doesn't necessarily mean anything because they have 50 other vulnerabilities that have a CVSS score of 10. So if you can use intelligence, if you can use risk to tell a story, hey, this needs to be passed right away because there's an active exploit in the wild and it's already hit one of our competitors. You know, I'm not saying it has to be a Tolstoy-level story, but you know, if you can explain in plain language why this is critical and why it needs to be uh, dealt with immediately, you're much more likely to get an affirmative response and, and get things patched in an order, you know, in, in a priority order, because you can explain why this has to be patched first, this next, this, and so on. And that's sort of just one example uh, of how using risk, using intelligence, using, uh, you know, uh, your, you know, expanding your vocabulary beyond just ones and zeros helps you become more effective as an organization. Great. Thank you, Alan Liskin. And Alan Poller, I see here in your bio that you uh, um, chair the keynote panel at the RSA conference on the seven most dangerous attack vectors. And I imagine that those vectors change every year. So uh, 
as we're thinking about risk and vulnerability, it seems like we have a constantly moving target. Is that helpful or is that uh, uh, an added challenge to the the education and literacy topic we were talking about earlier? It is constantly moving. Alan Alan Liska did a really nice job on sort of talking about the, the challenge to the systems people. So the security person, regardless of who he reports to or who she reports to, doesn't, can't fix anything. They don't have administrative rights on the computers. The, the people who actually fix things are the operations people who generally don't work for the, for the security person. So this, what Alan Lisko is talking about is really central to the challenge. And I, I want to put it in context. We, we have an epidemic that has begun, um, epidemic in the sense of large global epidemic right now in cyber, which is this ransomware thing. And people are just beginning to understand that they're next, not, oh my God, look, that city got it. Oh wait, 30 cities got it. Oh wait, four churches got it. Oh wait, five companies got it. It's an epidemic. And, and people are damping it down because they don't want to scare people, but there's no point in damping it down because it's a real pain when, you're, when every piece of data you have is encrypted and you can't get to it and your backups are encrypted too because you haven't actually protected them. It's a real pain. Um, and I, I don't, this concept of 300 million is, is, is real cost, but it's small compared to what this, this epidemic is going cost, to cost us. So t- taking what Alan was talking about and putting it in perspective, I want to talk about a, a fascinating evolution. He used the word evolution. Um, a fascinating evolution. The State Department is actually the epitome of it, although justice is about 92% of the way there and a few other agencies are moving along. And what they've done is they recognize that the – um, the systems guys have a lot of other things to do besides fix vulnerabilities. So having a long conversation with them about one is okay, but having a new conversation with them about one every three days or every two days or every two hours is a dead, deadly fatal kind of strategy. It, it won't work. So what they did is they took all that intelligence and they built it into a, a system that delivers to every system administrator every morning the three or four things she can do or you can do that morning that will do the most to reduce their risk points. So they took this idea of risk and made it and monetized it. Instead of just talking about it, they, they monetized it so that every single thing a system person could do has a certain number of risk points. And when something really bad happens, all they have to do is raise the number of risk points on that thing and they don't have to have a conversation. So it, they, they take what Ellen was talking about and make it automated. And we're seeing that now this new program that's just matured after seven years of long gestation. Anyway, it's called CDM, uh, Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation, is actually starting to do what the State Department did, and that's going to sweep through the federal government. And as it does, the hygiene, the things that you have to do every day, will stop being a conversation between the security guy and the systems person and will be delivered to the systems people every morning and they'll get graded for their bosses on how they're doing on risk management. So it's, a, it's that whole evolution Alan was talking about, and it's getting to the point where you can actually smile a little about it because there's no way to have that many conversations every day in, in the federal government. And being able to link um, that risk score to the organization's essential functions and services. Uh, so if you're, let's say, a tire manufacturer and you know that your risk to your manufacturing line you know, is increased substantially, but there's also an additional risk to logistics and, and shipping. If you understand how all those components of your organization work together to produce a product or a service, then it puts the vulnerabilities and uh, the threats in perspective. So uh, organizational leaders can say, well, okay, I don't have to understand everything about the technology or the technical vulnerability, but the risk is increased to my to my my mission or my my business. And that makes it real for people. And then it, it operationalizes it and monetizes it uh, in a way that um, makes it um, uh, a lot easier to respond to as an organization. Well, and having a list of your top three things that you can actually focus on and deal with today seems a lot more constructive and focused than, oh man, the world's on fire. Um, the guy in the front office who I need to pull that switch isn't going to answer me. Um, it's it's it sounds like there's some really positive evolutions on building those bridges 
at the levels you need them to so that organizations holistically can uh, address these risks. And remember, we're talking cybersecurity, so it's not the world on fire, it's a dumpster fire. That's sort of the uh, the, the mascot for cybersecurity. Yeah, there. We were talking at the beginning about what actually keeps you up at night. I, I want to put this in perspective. The reason that it matters isn't that somebody might lose their their um, credit card or or lose lose their data and have to go reconstruct it. That's awful. The real reason that this this area matters is actually has twofold. But the main one is is the military. The main ones are the military and the power industries and. Um, the, the military in particular, when you have a kinetic weapon, a, a bomb, it destroys itself when it lands. When you have a, a cyber weapon, it actually sits there. And the, the best cyber weapons from the best the countries that are lead can get around every known defense. But if you send a, a weapon out to another person who's smart, that other person can take it and change it so that it already gets around every known defense. And because of that, when it comes back, you have no automated defense that can possibly stop it. And, and this is a big, the last NSA symposium, the, the big truth was in the next war, the tanks will be people. Meaning if you don't have somebody on your side who has a complete knowledge set about what things ought to look like and is ready for that attack, that attack wipes you out. So in, in a military situation and, and, in, and in preparing for military situations, you take out power systems and, and, and other co and communication systems, and they're in exactly the same position. So all these things we're talking about that, that are just dumpster fires can become catastrophes if we keep thinking about them as not very important. Well, on that... Yeah, I mean, we see that all the time in the... Um, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no. Uh, uh, you, Alan, uh, please provide a, a, a final thought on that, and then we'll, we'll take a, a second break here and then dive back into this conversation. Yeah, I, all I was going to say is we see that all the time when we, you know, in monitoring underground forums where, uh, you know, the bad guys will take a piece of code that was somewhat effective and they'll retool it and make it better and that evolution continues um you know we saw that with the hidden tear ransomware that was um, published to github a few years back we now see multiple strains based on that and each one is better and better and it's become more modular so it's easy to add new exploits and new capabilities to it um and then resend it out you know for a new team to resend it out so that that is a, a an ongoing problem and, and is one that's going to continue to grow. Absolutely. Well, we're going to have to pause here for our second break of the program. We're going to continue our discussion about cybersecurity after this break and a word from our sponsor. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Breifel, joined in the studio by Charlie Harry, Alan Poller, and via phone from Alan Liska. Uh, we're talking about cybersecurity, and, and before the break, um, Alan Poller shared with us his perspective that why this topic really matters is at, you know, the, the, the nation state, the society-wide um, 
level, which is, you know, military dynamics and critical infrastructure. So whether that's your power systems, your water systems, election systems, you name it, uh, these are things that have society and global wide impacts and uh, the, uh, the, the day-to-day personal impacts like a data breach and, and losing your personal information as horrible as that can be is more recoverable than uh, if something truly uh, happens in some of these other sectors. And, and during the um, commercial break you're talking about, apparently there was a, uh, a power grid attack in Africa or something. Okay, and and when we see these incidents occur in different places in the world, um, are governments, are different sectors working together to learn from and adapt and and try to um, get ahead of the next steps the best you can? I I imagine at the same time the bad guys are also doing the same thing. So how does that all – how does that all work out? Well, certainly the federal government has spent a lot of time and, and effort thinking about critical infrastructure, going all the way back to the Clinton administration uh, and some of the some of the earlier work on defining critical infrastructure and specifically concerns about you know cyber attacks uh, against the, that infrastructure. And it's evolved uh, by different administrations, and um, the current administration is continuing to you know advance the the ball on that. Um, the 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 biggest um, the biggest issue is, you know, DHS has the uh, federal responsibility of, of trying to oversee and promote security and critical infrastructure. Um, the challenge is, though, is that the government doesn't own most of the critical infrastructure in this country, right? It's it's mostly owned by private operators. And so the government, unless you're part of a regulated utility, actually has a fairly limited amount of power to compel people to do certain things. And so it might be one thing if you're talking about the electrical grid, but it, it, it could be different if you're talking about surface transport. Um, and so the challenge is, is you've got multiple stakeholders, private and public, uh, that have to find ways to work together. And so, you know, they, there are these things called the ISACs uh, that allow uh, folks to exchange information about threats and, and vulnerabilities, and that's useful. But I think one of the real challenges that at least the federal government in this country has, and frankly around the world, is how do they, you know, how do they manage this, you know, in essence, really, really complicated multi-stakeholder problem? Now, on this guy, I'd be interested in your perspective at this from from Recorded Future and, and the other com- major companies that that you've worked at that have done this. How, how what is that ecosystem of information sharing, collaboration, um, look like and manifest, and um, wh- where are things going um, from from your perspective? So. It- Overall, I think it's trending in the right direction. I think there's still some challenges. So one of the things that we did recently uh, is we we did a report on uh, ransomware attacks against state and local governments because it's been in the news. And um, we were able to catalog 220 attacks from uh, 2013 through uh, the end of September of 2000 or the end of August 2019, um, and, and we see it as a growing trend. But one of the things that we found during our research is that a lot of the people in the state and local government, the sort of the IT teams and if the cities that are lucky enough to have security teams. Um, see a dearth of information sharing. So they'll get hit with ransom where they'll reach out to their local FBI office. The FBI will come in and, and, and help them and, and provide them information. But overall, nobody seems to be collecting statistics around who's, you know, what, what strains are hitting, um, what methods they're using to get in, et cetera, and sharing that back to the state and local governments. So while I think there is in the government and, and among industry in general a lot of sharing, I think it's at a very uh, you know, sort of the upper echelons of companies and state agencies and the smaller uh, smaller companies, smaller state and local governments aren't getting the benefit of that information sharing and they're the ones that need it the most because they have such limited resources that they need to make sure that what they do have, they're, they're putting toward the most effective solution to solve their problem. And so even though there's the MSI SEC, which can help them with, with some of that guidance, 
it'd be nice if there was, you know, at least on the particular topic of ransomware, if there was better reporting from, say, the FBI or the Department of Justice about, hey, here's here's what we're seeing, and here's some of some steps you can do to protect yourself. Yeah, the the MSISAC that stands for multi-state ISAC. They now have, I think, eight thousand members of state and local government, and just along the lines you're just you're describing, Alan, that that they've set up a new uh, SOC or I don't know a facility where the FBI is actually has people there, so that kind of sharing is 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 there. The the multi-state ISAC and the financial services ISAC are the models for actually the best we've got in the country. And I agree it's not perfect at all. But they're the two that are really doing a good job. What, they're, what they tend to not like, it's sort of funny. The cities are just like the financial organizations. When the federal government engages with them, the federal government seems to engage with the sentence, send us your data. And then you say, and, and they say, send us your data. And there's no, there's nothing <laughs> there, the reason to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but within those ISACs, there is actually, within it, there are layers and almost like the atmosphere. There are layers of sharing where people trust each other that are minutes, seconds on some of these these attacks. On, and the MS ISAC is brilliant. Sadly, I just learned that the, uh, d- the DHS is cutting back the multi-state ISAC by, by a third, which has got to be a cutting off your nose to spite your face, but they must have something they think is a better better investment. You know, one, one of the things that Alan Liska uh, raised, which I think is really important, is something as simple as statistics um, is something that we frankly just don't have a, a, a great sense of in, the, in this field. So, you know, there are lots of organizations that, you know, generate their, their own intelligence and, and publish a, a, a number of great reports. But there are not a lot of really good data sets when it comes to, you know, how many ransomware attacks, you know, do we see and in what sectors? Uh, and how does that compare to DDoS? And how does that compare to, you know, other flavors of, uh, of attacks? And, you know, for instance, in my, in my own research, you know, I've spent a lot of time combing through open source uh, sources to put together just even a data set of, you know, 5,500. And that's over just like the last four or five years. And, and the data is terrible. It, you know, it's hopelessly biased, no doubt about it, but it's still better than what, you know, uh, doesn't happen. And, and frankly, this is an area where DHS could really add a lot of value to the community to help provide folks, even if it's not perfect, a sense of scale and severity. Um, and that, you know, that helps. And then it certainly, you know, it, w- it would allow the researching community to be able to go in and, and continue to advance the ball. So I, I think that's a really important point. To follow up on that, just with a question, which which is based on my lack of knowledge, is that information and data not available, or it's just nobody is taking the lead, or it's nobody's job? People don't want to talk to, about it. It if would, it would freak everyone out too much if it if it was comprehensively. Yeah, very very long time ago, there was I was chairing a CIO conference of CIOs, and and the as I was flying in, the USA Today had an article that Janet Reno was asking every company to share data about the attacks because if they if they would, it would allow people, researchers, but everybody else to understand it. And I, I held the paper up and I said, so how many of you are now going to share? There weren't any hands that came up. There's no, the, the victim doesn't get any benefit. There's no system like, and this was a proposal several times, there's no system like the CDC where doctors actually have to. It's a very easy model for making that work where you, the consulting firms can can be forced to report anonymously what they're learning. It's just not happening. It's the proposal was put out seven, eight, nine years ago, and it's never been brought forward. I want to change the subject back to something Alan mentioned, though. He said the state and local governments, uh, if they can get the people, it turns out that I want to come back. It's a one-trick pony. Um, I want to come back to this manpower thing. It turns out that they can't get the people, and if they can get the people, the people get stolen. Um, there, there's a wonderful article by Alan Nakashima in the Washington Post about the fratricide between divisions of NSA, where there are so few people in every consulting company that were really good that one division of, of NSA would, for, would, would set, had a new contract that stole the good people from the other division of, of NSA's contractors, and they called it fratricide. So it's, it's that level of, 
of destruction of, of, of good work. So the problem is not finding people. The problem is creating a pipeline. And, and I, you had said when governments, our government's sharing, one of the coolest places governments are sharing is something UK pioneered and the f- federal government just did called the Cyber Reskilling Academy here. And in the United Kingdom, it was called the Cyber Retraining Academy. But it, it played off a very important finding that was made by a guy named James Line in the UK, which is that there is only a small percentage of people who have a natural aptitude to do the technical work. There may be a much higher percentage who can talk about it, but the people who have to do the really hard technical work, only a small percentage. And they developed a talent, a, a, an aptitude test, which is mostly psychometric that says, Are the brain, does your brain work like people who do that well? Not do you know anything? It's not a skills test. It's a, it's a, and they, and the federal government and the British government did it. And the British government had 51, 55 people and the, the, none of them had worked in IT. They were bartenders and psychiatrists and journalists and all sorts of things. 51 of the 55 are working in important IT jobs at the end of an intense training because, not because the training was good, but because the aptitude test actually found it. And there's a, there's a game you can play which, which takes a half an hour called CyberStart Go. It's free. It's, it's on the web. Just search CyberStart Go. And if you love that, you might be one of those 3% who are going to do well on the aptitude test. Who, and there are lots of companies who are now going to – that are following in the federal government's footsteps where they, and military organizations where they have hundreds of thousands of employees. If 2 or 3% of those are going to be really good, that's enough. That completely fills their need for high-tech talent. So I, I, the CyberStart Go thing that the Brits started with and now the, the feds are, are doing and the cyber reskilling, that actually is, a, is the first really positive sense I've had that we can fix the cyber manpower problem in the country. That aptitude test actually, um, uh, that, that work or that research was actually done at the University of Maryland uh, in, in the Castle program, and then they contracted out to the U.S. government to, to do this. But, but it's exactly the point you raised, which is you can take folks who just have a natural aptitude for this without any technical training. If you can highlight where they're going to be good, then you can turn around and um, you know provide them the training to actually get them skilled up, and, and they have a partnership with the Department of Defense in that in that area. Fabulous. Well, I really think that this is a hugely important topic, as we talked about from the beginning. It's it's the intersection of of technology and people, but the people part is is usually the part that's most challenging, and we are providing some good focus to that. We're at our last break. We're going to hear a word from our sponsor and then come back into the last segment of our program. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. We're in the last segment of our program. I'm joined with Charlie Harry, the University of Maryland, Alan Pauler with the Sands Institute, and Alan Lisko with Recorded Future. Uh, right before the break, we were talking about efforts in the federal government and in other governments to uh, identify through aptitude tests as opposed to looking at prior education or skills. Folks who think and operate in the way that, that we need in, in this cyberspace. And uh, I think that that is a, a hugely important area to focus on, especially if you look at you know BLS and other data that says we need hundreds of thousands of cybersecurity professionals in this country alone. 
let alone to speak on on the global scale. And I'd be curious to talk about this a little bit more because we do have the Cyber Reskilling Academy, which you know I think pushed 30 to 50 folks through. How are folks seeking to scale those to get the numbers of uh, qualified employees or folks with the proper aptitude into these roles? Um, maybe we'll talk about that, and then I have a follow-up, which is, to Charlie's point, you, you need the technical piece, but then you also need the other integrators who deal with all the other aspects. So maybe let's first talk about how, how are you seeing folks scale this concept of, of bringing folks over into this yeah, space? There's, there's something really fun happening. Twenty. Five governors, state governors, personally told all the high school girls in their in their states last February that if they wanted to, they could try to see if they're good at at, at cybersecurity. And if they were, they could win scholarships for college. They could win access to all the money for their schools. And ten thousand three hundred high school girls did it. What was fascinating was that. Almost all of them had no idea that they would be good at it. A few of them were the people who we would have found anyway. But that governor program, uh, it's called Girls Go Cyber Start, um, that I, I just heard eight or 11 states have already signed up for this year. Um, so, and I think the National Governors Association will help to try to get it to all the states. Um, that program has the best chance I've ever seen of filling a pipeline with people who are excited about it, who are going to be good at it. So if you tr- if, if you do what we do, we train 50,000 people a year. If you get people in class who don't want to be there and who aren't going to be good at it, it's way harder to teach them. So if we can have a, a flow of people coming into the field who, are, who are, have the aptitude, are good at it. And what's very cool about that program is it brings the boys in. So if the girls do well enough, they win the game for the boys in the school but they become the technical leaders. And we have a field where 90% of the technical people are boys. And the two best, two of the three best intrusion detection analysts I've ever known are named Vicki Irwin and Judy Novak. So leaving all the women out has got to be really a dangerous and stupid thing for a nation to do. So this, this program the governors are, are doing to bring the young women in first, not to leave the boys out, but let the, let the girls lead, this really solves two big problems for the nation. And I um, I think NSF just funded the Computer Science Teachers Association to bring it to all the computer science teachers in the country. So it, it looks like the nation has a plan. The Brits have a similar plan called Cyber Discovery. So it looks like the, the problem of pipeline, at least it has a promising approach. Yeah, so uh, at the University of Maryland, we have a um, honors program called ACES, Advanced Cyber Experience for Students. Uh, it's actually a multidisciplinary program, and we bring folks uh, from high school who oftentimes have they, they don't have any understanding of cyber whatsoever. They're just exceptionally bright people, uh, and, and it's uh, a well-diversified program. And so I teach in, uh, in that program, and in the course that I teach is really kind of a foundations uh, course. It, it's all about, you know, how does the Internet work? I mean, how did it evolve? Who are the threat actors? What are the motives? What is the process of hacking? And the idea is that... As they go through that and they get additional courses in forensics and courses in incident response and the more technical aspects, at the end of the day, they have a broad foundation that then we can send them to, to a SANS or to another you know, technical program where they're going to get real hands-on, deep technical experience. And so it's, it's a process uh, that we can, we can work through. And, and NSF has uh, supported uh, that ACES program. And there are other uh, universities that are trying to emulate it. And the idea, though, is that it's multidisciplinary. It's not simply for computer scientists and computer engineers. It also includes people that are economists, uh, political scientists, accountants. Uh, so it's it's truly a multidisciplinary program. Yeah, the, the person who runs, I was trying to remember his name, is a French. French. Oh, uh, Michel Coutier. Yeah, Michel Coutier is is a, epitomizes one of the biggest challenges we have in the field. That is an extraordinary program. But it's an extraordinary program, meaning I can't find any more Michelles around the country. And when people try to replicate these wonderful programs, and it really is wonderful, and if you can get in, get in. And if, if NSF can give them another $5 million and double it, it's, it's a great idea. But the great problem we have in cybersecurity is we find these wonderful things that will do 75 people. And the problem is 75,000 people, and I can't find more Michelles. And, and uh, it, 
and and there's no fixing it. It's why I like the Girls Go Cyber Start because the teachers don't have to know anything about cybersecurity. They just have to let the kids loose. And the girls who learn teach all the other girls and the teachers are stars. So it's a, it's a scale thing. It's not as good as finding more Michelles, but it's the only path forward. And, and Alan, I'm, I I'm curious about your, the, there you go. Uh, sorry. So I volunteer for the Microsoft Teals program um, in, uh, in in my local high school, and it, you know Teals is ultimately a, a, you know a computer science program, and I wind up in, in a class that's primarily built around an introduction to programming. Um, but one of the nice things about that is the the teacher that I work with in the school. Um, wants to introduce the, the kids in the class to cybersecurity. So I give a couple of talks um, during, the, during the year about different cybersecurity things. So I had a talk about uh, the target breach or some of the roles in cybersecurity. Um, one time they allowed me to give a talk about how I would break into the school to change, the, uh, to change my uh, students' grades. Um, they wouldn't let me do that talk again because apparently it was very effective. Um, uh, and the you know the the classes that I'm in are usually about uh, you know forty sixty uh, girls to boys. Um, but when we start talking about some of the things in cybersecurity, I get a lot of people that are interested in that, and that allows me to then refer the girls in the class to you know, hey, there's, you know, here's the Cyber Patriot program, or if you want something girl-specific, here's the TechBridge uh, program or the Black Girls Code program that are, uh, you know, that, are, that have local chapters in the area, and you can, um, you know, you can reach out and talk to them. And so I keep those contacts handy that allow me to, to, to spark their interest. And if you'll indulge me, one of my favorite stories was uh, one of the girls in the class, um, they do Java programming, and she had just successfully finished the program, and she was uh, taking a video of the, the results of the program, which was a little, you, know, you have a little thing that you move through a maze and it collects beepers or whatever. Um, and uh, yeah, I walked over, and I'm like, are you taking a video of your program? And she kind of was really sheepish about it, and she's like, no, I was Snapchatting to my dad. I'm like, no, 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 go do that. This. this is great. When I, when I made my first code, which was Fortran back in the day, if I had had a cell phone and all that, I would have been doing the same thing. It's excited when you make those breakthroughs and you should be sharing it with it. And, you know, and, and so it's nice to see this kind of excitement and be able to encourage that on to the next level. When we're in the last two minutes of the program here and, and kind of it seems like we've been on a little bit of a roller coaster of is, is a, a really huge problem out there, an epidemic with, with some of these issues. But it sounds like at the end of the day from each of you, it sounds like there's there's some hope and promise that we are finding ways to address this complex challenge that the new generation, these young folks who are finding interest and passion around this topic, maybe from un, unfamiliar places, uh, gives you all hope. Hey, thank you, Alan Liska from Recorded Future, Charlie Harry with University of Maryland, and uh, Alan Poller. Well, thank you all so much for joining us today. Fed Talk is brought to you by the Federal Employment Law Firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Have a great weekend.